Morning, Aletheia. The title of my message this morning is Serving When It Isn't Easy. Serving When It Isn't Easy. It seems as though our time in 1 Timothy has called us to truly be countercultural. Never before in my Christian life did I realize just how controversial these words are that Paul has given to us in 1 Timothy. Of course, I've read this letter many times, but when you set these words against the backdrop of our culture, it truly makes our alienness so apparent, to quote Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. When you think of the word slavery, what do you think of? Maybe for most of you, you consider the current issue that we have globally with sex trafficking. Or even many of you may be thinking of the American system of chattel slavery. Perhaps some of you are historians, and you can recall slavery in the ancient world in multiple societies, or even in the more modern world in multiple territories and states. Whatever your background with this topic, I want to encourage you today to listen to the word of God with humble, open hearts and minds. Many of the things that I'm going to say to you this morning are not going to be easy to hear or to obey, but I promise you that these words are for your eternal benefit. I'll never forget the first time that I became conscious of slavery as an institution. I was in the eighth grade at Hawthorne Junior Senior High School, and what would become one of my favorite classes would be where I would hear about this. I sat in American history and watched the movie Amistad in utter shock and amazement. Even to this day, I can remember uh, little me watching the slave ship as it rocked back and forth and those who are in it suffering terribly through the middle passage. What I was watching as a middle school student was the American slave trade in action. And it was a sobering reality. Again, as I said before, many of you may be like me. When you think of slavery, those are the images and the experiences that you think of. But while that is related it is not the same system of slavery as what we have in the biblical text. Roman slavery, for example, was very different. One um, way that you can look at that is through the issue of race. Obviously, American slavery was based upon race, but slavery in the Roman Empire was not based upon race. That wasn't even a consideration. This is very different from the American system. What we want to understand and describe and look at today is slavery as presented in the pages of Scripture. I know some of you may be thinking, why did the elders assign Theo to preach this message? This is a difficult truth to explain. Well, I want to give you a little peek behind the curtain. Um, whenever we preach here at Aletheia, um, if it's uh, Daniel Espy or the elders or myself, whenever anyone preaches here, we generally choose the text that we preach. Uh, the only person that doesn't choose the text that they preach is Kevin. Kevin primarily preaches, so he preaches everything that we don't pick up. And so I chose this text, and I'm happy to bring you this word from the Lord this morning. As always, all of us who preach, endeavor to expositionally work through Scripture. We don't avoid difficult or controversial topics. We always want to explain to you what God meant by what God said. And so with that in mind, let's look at our text again. Read 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1 with me again. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. My first point is this point, God as master, God as master. Let's talk about the Lordship of Christ. As we begin this morning, I wanna say from the outset that I am not gonna say everything that you can possibly say about slavery in the Bible. I'm primarily going to be condensing ideas and thoughts to give you the general overview of Scripture. If you want more information about this topic, please feel free to reach out to me. I'll be more than happy to give you resources and to go uh, deeper into this topic with you. And so let's start 
with a generally understood facet of Christianity. And that is with the idea that Jesus Christ is Lord. The word tells us that in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. The Father is Lord. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9. He is in charge. Colossians chapter 3, verse 24. He is the boss. Jude 4. He is our authority. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. God is our master. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 22. Every time we call Jesus Lord, we acknowledge him as our master. This idea of a God who rules his people with authority flies in the face of the contemporary church. In so many churches, we hear about prosperity, the pursuit of happiness and wealth and success, but we do not focus significantly on our submission to the will of God and the person of God himself. The God, little g, of popular Christianity is one who is here to fulfill all of our desires and wants and dreams. He wants to give us personal fulfillment and personal gratification. This is part of what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Many people will tell you. Popular Christianity, mainstream Christianity, does not call us to submit to Christ. It says that Christ is here to fulfill all of our desires. In a sense, God is like our personal assistant or our personal life coach who is eager to do our bidding and to help us to reach our goals. He is all about our individual accomplishment. The New Testament's understanding of our relationship to God is very much different than that. God is our master and our owner. He is our Lord and authority. Jesus Christ is our King and absolute sovereign. We are his subordinates. We are his subjects. We are his possession. Put another way, we are his slaves. My second point is this point, Christians as slaves. Read with me Romans chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Let's talk about this hidden word, slaves. One of the odd things in many English translations of the Bible is the fact that there is a Greek word which is often softened in its translation. The Greek word that is softened is the word doulos. Doulos in Greek means slave. This word only and always means slave. And yet, in the ESV and most English translations, it is rendered servant or bondservant. There are at least half a dozen Greek words for the word servant. Doulos is not another word for servant. Again, doulos always and only means slave. I can give the ESV a little bit of credit by sharing that frequently in the footnotes, the translators will tell you that the word is slave despite them translating it as servant or the more ambiguous term, bondservant, most of the time. The word slave in Greek is someone who, quote, is owned by another, someone who is subject to an alien will without freedom, autonomy, or personal rights. In the Greco-Roman world, slaves were possessions rather than persons. Why do translators avoid using the term slave most of the time? Many scholars believe that they do this for two reasons. One, because of the horrific American slave trade. And two, because in Latin, which was the predominant translation the Bible used for hundreds of years, the term slave in their world meant someone who is in prison or in physical chains. But servant meant someone who is owned by an authority. Consequently, 
As the translators long ago and even in modern times began to translate the Bible into English, they often used the word servant unless they absolutely could not avoid it, such as in Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 23, where they do translate doulos to be slaved the entire time that it is used. But so frequently, doulos is translated as servant or as bondservant, which doesn't give us the full meaning of that word. It is critically important that we don't lose this word because it carries so much meaning and significance for the believer in Jesus. Listen to how the apostles describe themselves. Note this, that from this point in the message until we get to the very end, every time the word doulos is mentioned in scripture, I'm going to put the word slave in its place. Please, Examine this for yourself so that you know that this is the proper translation of this word. Um, it would not be super difficult to go online or to use other study resources to see that doulos means slave, and thus it's right that we translate it that way every time we see it in Greek and scripture. Let's look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, which says this. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jude 1. Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Revelation 1, 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his slaves the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his slave, John. So to recap, that was the apostles and the leaders of the early church. That was Paul and Timothy, James, Peter, Jude, and John all of whom call themselves the slaves of God. Suffice to say that we are not above them in our self-designation as the slaves of God. One early Christian heroine in the history of the church was Blandina. In the year 177 AD in Lyons, Gaul, what we would call modern-day France, Blandina was a slave girl. Only 25 years earlier, a bishop arrived and with him, the advance of the gospel. Many in the area hated this faith and an intense persecution of Christians began. After enduring various forms of torture, many Christians were taken to the amphitheater where wild beasts would consume them to entertain the crowd. Blandina was one such Christian. After being severely treated and cruelly attacked, she was suspended on a stake and exposed to animals. As she hung, intensely praying the entire time, many Christians took heart and were encouraged by her faithfulness. She reminded them of Christ as he hung on the tree. Much to everyone's surprise, the beast did not touch her. Eventually, she was taken down and thrown into prison. On the last day of the contest, she was brought back into the amphitheater with a 15-year-old boy named Pontus. For the days leading up to this day, the two of them were pressed to deny their faith and to swear on idols. The boy died, and then only Blandina was left. She is recorded as having faced her death as though she were going to a marriage feast, rejoicing all the way. After she was scourged, after she was thrown to the wild beasts, after she was made to sit on a scorching hot roasting seat, she was finally enclosed in a net and thrown in front of a bull. 
It tossed her until she breathed her last. After encouraging so many others and watching them go to the Lord, she was finally able to meet him herself and she was eager to arrive at last. You see, this slave was a powerful witness to more people than she could have possibly imagined. She was like Abel, where in Hebrews 11.4, it tells us that though he died, he still speaks. Though she died, her life still speaks today of the greatness of Jesus Christ. Though she was a slave, her life was not in vain. Her life has value before the Lord. One of my biggest spiritual heroes is George Mueller. John MacArthur, in his book entitled Slave, The Hidden Truth About Your Identity in Christ, which I would recommend to all of you to read, says this about Mueller. Fueled by a new understanding of God's grace and salvation, George Mueller embarked on a path of profound and sacrificial ministry. Over the course of his lifetime, he would oversee the care of 100,000 orphans in 19th century England, providing for them and educating them to the point that he was accused of elevating poor children above their natural station in life. As a fervent prayer warrior, he never solicited funds for his orphan houses, but rather took all of his requests directly to the Lord. As an itinerant evangelist, a work he began in earnest at age 70, he traveled more than 200,000 arduous and slow miles preaching in the United States, Australia, India, China, Japan, and dozens of other countries. In all of this, Mueller's heart was captivated by an indefatigable desire to serve and glorify his Lord. Having been rescued from slavery to sin, he was now the willing slave of Jesus. As D. Martin Lloyd-Jones observed, a statement which the great George Mueller once made himself seems to illustrate this very clearly. He writes like this, There was a day when I died, utterly died. Died to George Mueller and his opinions, preferences, tastes, and will. Died to the world, its approval or censure. Died to the approval or blame of even my brethren and friends. And since then, I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. That is a statement to be pondered deeply. Again, when we call Jesus our Lord, we are acknowledging him as our master. He is the only one to whom we should totally submit, obey, follow, and subject our wills and desires to. Our Savior's parables, and you can probably think of multiple parables in your mind right now, our Savior's parables frequently refer to God as our master, and they frequently refer to him as our owner, and we as his slaves. For all of eternity, we will serve and worship him. Or let me give you that in the words of the Apostle John in Revelation 22, verse 3. John writes these words. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his slaves will worship him. My third point is this point. Slaves obey masters. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1. Let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Let's do a really big meta view of what the Bible says about slavery. Let's begin by looking at the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 through 10, God tells us that he despises the treatment of his people who are slaves to the Egyptians. That's one of the most detailed accounts that we have of slavery in uh, the opening pages of the Bible. And then when you go deeper into the book of Exodus, you look at um, chapter 21, we see that if Hebrews were enslaved to one another, 
They were only to stay in that state of slavery for six years, and then in the seventh year, they could go free. They had to be set free. God had very specific laws and regulations for slavery that were, in a word, radically different than the brutal 400-year system that we think of in Western society. Let's look at the New Testament. Scripture provides a rubric for how a Christian slave owner and a Christian slave should interact. The New Testament even provides guidance on how the Christian slave and the Christian slave owner are to associate with one another and with the unbelieving. I'll give you a couple places to look at this, and and we'll dive into these scriptures uh, more deeply in GC. But Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 through 25. Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. All four of those passages, among other passages in the New Testament, give us a really clear picture of the way that God views the slave-master relationship and how Christians should respond and act as slaves. In summation, slavery is allowed under the New Testament. It exists as a strong human example of our spiritual relationship with God. Despite all that, the New Testament is also clear that slavery is not ultimately good or preferred. The first place I will refer you to is the entire book of Philemon, which was written to a Christian slave owner, Philemon, asking him to forgive his runaway slave, Onesimus, who after running away became a Christian. Note these words beginning in verse 15. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Philemon 15 and 16. Here we see Paul gently encouraging Philemon to no longer view Onesimus as a slave, but rather as a brother. Paul wants Philemon to free Onesimus of his own desire without having to be commanded to do so, which is what Paul says in verse 8. He says, I could command you to free him and to let him go, but I want you to make that choice out of love. And so Paul does not directly tell him to do that. He's hoping that Philemon will do it out of love. Next, let's look at something that Paul tells the Corinthians. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 20. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a slave of Christ. You are bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 20 through 24. Clearly, we see that Paul is not destroying slavery, but he is also not endorsing it. He expressly says, do not become slaves of men. If you can gain your freedom, do so. I believe those verses are pretty clear about God's overall thoughts. If you are a slave, Use that to glorify God so that others come to know him. If you are free, remember that you are God's slaves and serve him diligently. If at all possible, never become a slave of men. Another note, stealing people away to force them into slavery displeases the Lord. Exodus chapter 21, verse 16 says these words. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him 
shall be put to death. And in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11, so something that we read many weeks ago, Paul tells us this. Maybe something that's kind of tucked away that um, you may have missed. But Paul says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. This word enslavers means those who take someone captive in order to sell them into slavery. Clearly we see that forcing someone into captivity is not something that God approves of. It's listed in this list of sins. So that's a a really big picture meta overview of what the Bible says about slavery, uh, super briefly in the Old Testament, and then pretty briefly in the New Testament. uh, It's an overview. Uh, But let's talk about slavery for a second in our modern world, in, in the world in which we live right now. Today, there's more than 45 million people who are enslaved primarily in Asia, where two-thirds of the victims live. This is according to the BBC. Modern slaves in 2020 are forced to work in the seafood industry, cannabis factories and nail bars, sex slavery, forced begging, and a few other more secluded and closed areas of life. Slavery is a massive problem in our current world that Christians are trying to abolish through organizations such as the End It Movement. Um, I would strongly commend to you all to to go to End It Movement, uh, their website, uh, phenomenal website as they try to abolish slavery in our modern world. I think it's important to also note that many of the abolitionists in early America were indeed Christians. And that's not to say that every person uh, who wanted to abolish slavery uh, was a Christian in America, but the vast majority of them were believers. Let's turn our gaze more intensely into 1 Timothy 6, verse 1. Up to this point in our series in 1 Timothy, we have seen what proper relationships should look like between several different groups of people. This includes people in the church who are widows and people who are elders and deacons, just to name a few. Now, the Apostle Paul turns his attention to slaves and slave owners. In our primary text this morning, Paul is exhorting slaves to be respectful to their masters so that the name of God is also respected and so that the gospel is honored and esteemed. Up to a third of the Roman Empire at this point in history, when Paul wrote these words, was a slave. This is a very significant population of people, and Paul knew that he needed to give specific instructions to Timothy as he pastored the church in Ephesus, which no doubt had an abundance of slaves. Just as he did Paul, that is, with the other groups such as widows and elders, Paul wanted to give guidance to slaves as well. Slaves performed almost every task imaginable in that society and were the backbone for the smooth functioning of the empire. Slaves could be conscripted through multiple avenues, including captives of war, sorry, as captives of war. They could uh, sell themselves into slavery to pay a debt, um, or you could be born into slavery back in this time. Those are the primary ways that you became a slave, those three ways. Let me say that when Paul says in chapter 6 and verse 1, when he gives a call not for slaves to be emancipated, but rather for slaves to conduct themselves in a particular way, this is offensive to many of our ears. I freely acknowledge that. I I feel that burden and that strain just like you do. 
that to read these words is so against our culture and so against the things that we generally believe in this country that simply for the Bible to suggest that this is acceptable and, 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 and in a sense okay is offensive to us. I totally empathize with that idea. But I want you to notice some contrasting elements in this letter and some contrasting elements in the, the flow of thought of God in his scripture. When Paul mentions husbands and wives' relationships to one another, he grounds their mutual submission to the creation ordinance in Genesis chapter 2. He does this in Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33. In a similar manner, when Paul is addressing children, he tells them to obey their parents because of God's moral law in Exodus chapter 20. He does this in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. But notice that Paul doesn't ground his teaching on slavery to the creation mandate or to God's moral law. He simply recognizes slavery as an institution in a fallen world and gives guidance around managing it rather than condoning it. He doesn't justify his existence with the Old Testament as he clearly does in marriage and with child rearing. He simply recognized it as an institution in society in that day and gave guidance as to how to work within it. Here in 1 Timothy, Paul grounds his commands with an evangelistic motivation. He basically says to be respectful to masters because that respect makes God look good and makes the gospel look good. All of our lives are about the furtherance of the gospel. That's the whole of our lives. That's, that's what we are meant to do and to be, is to further the gospel. Let's look at the gospel for a moment. One of the amazing elements in the gospel is the concept of redemption. Do you know what that word means? Redemption is the process by which a person is purchased by Christ's shed blood from the slave market of sin. All those who are in the faith have been purchased by the Father by means of his Son. Romans 3, verse 24. Ephesians 1, verse 7. Colossians 1, verse 14. We who were formerly enslaved to sin, Romans 6, have now been purchased by a new master and Lord who is good and generous and gracious. Our Lord is tender and compassionate. He is abounding in steadfast loving kindness and mercy. You see, sin and Satan wants to destroy us, but Jesus has come that we might have life. John chapter 10, verse 10. He's come that we will have abundant life. Do you remember what Paul told us about how Jesus came to save us in Philippians chapter 2? I'm sure many of you do, but let me just remind you. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 4, Paul says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The God that we serve is full of light and joy and peace. He bids you to come to him so that he can give you rest for your soul. Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. He is gentle and humble in heart, and there is no one better. He bids you to come to him. 
Paul says, for the Christian slave, they must treat their Christian masters with all due respect since they are beloved brothers who are benefited by their service. In summation, this passage is telling us to honor and respect one another. This is a very consistent word in the New Testament, this idea of honoring and respecting one another. There's no surprise that Paul describes this as he's describing slaves and slave owners. No surprise at all because this idea is very consistent in the New Testament, in the Word of God. Let me give you one example. Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 21. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. God wants us to look out for one another and to take care of each other. This is no less true than in the context of a slave with a believing master. In other places, such as Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9, Christian slaves are called to obey their earthly masters just as they obey Christ, because the Lord is going to give good things to them for their faithful service. In the same text, masters are told to do the same to their slaves. And to stop threatening their slaves, because God is the ultimate master, he treats all people the same, and threatening slaves displeases him. Let me just read that to you. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening. Knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Even slave owners are called to honor their slaves if they're in Christ, if they're believers. 
They are to treat them with kindness and respect. They are to supervise well, to lead well, care for their slaves well. They are to treat them as they would treat Christ. This is often not the image that we think of when we think about slavery, but this is expressly what the Word of God commands. What Scripture asks of us and asks of people within this context of a slave-master relationship is radically different than we may perceive. All of our actions should be undertaken with evangelism and the gospel witness in mind. Patient suffering leads people to Christ. From Blandina in the ancient world to we who live in the present, suffering well brings glory to God. And it draws people to Jesus Christ. I could give you countless examples of that. That is one reason why Christianity exploded in the ancient world, frequently among slaves, but eventually on every level of society. Christians suffered well, and people by the hundreds of thousands were added to the faith in the empire, and eventually the world. God is to be glorified in all circumstances. Point number four, Christian workers and employers. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 2. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. The believing employee and employer. In our current society, slavery is expressly outlawed. We are aware of the fact that there are systems of slavery and forms of slavery in America, but by and large, we do not have slavery as a formal practice in our society. Many Christians thus contextualize these words to reflect the relationship between themselves and their employers. I think that's a very valid thing to do once you understand the express and explicit instruction of Scripture. So now that we've looked at slaves and we've looked at uh, that context of these original words, we can contextualize this for ourselves and we can see what the Word of God will speak to us who are 21st century American believers. In a word, Christians should be the best workers at every job that they attend. In Genesis 1, God reviews all that he has done, and he calls it very good. God always does good work. In the same manner, we as believers and image bearers of God should do similarly. Christians should be the best workers at any job. We should always do good work. We should have the best integrity, the best attitude, and we should be the most dependable. We should work diligently, and we should work hard. The story has been told of a freshman new to university who really wanted to put his faith on display in his classes and amongst his professors. He came into a public university with the idea that all of his professors were going to be liberals who did not believe in God. He used every opportunity that presented itself in class to bring up an argument to advocate for the Christian faith. He would frequently raise his hand and start arguments. One day, his professor, who was not a Christian, came to him and said, Young man, if you really want to honor your God and actually give him a hearing in my life, what you could do is quit starting arguments and actually do your work. Our testimony should be one of honor, respect, and diligence. We should be the hardest workers. This may not describe you, this next thing that I'm about to say, but many Christians give other Christians less than their best. Christian workers who work for Christian organizations can use grace, quote unquote, 
as an excuse to be less diligent. This is very pervasive in Christian culture. We as God's people should always take care of one another to the best of our ability. God has called us to be industrious and attentive to the household of faith. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. Curtis Thomas in his book, Life in the Body of Christ, has written these words. As we carry out our responsibilities on our jobs, here are some questions we would do well to ask ourselves. One, do I regularly thank God for my job, whether it is a president of a Fortune 500 company or a garbage collector? Two, do I properly respect those at work in authority over me, even those whose religious, political, or moral convictions are different from mine? Three, do I work heartily in whatever vocation I am placed, knowing that my service is to the Lord? Four, do I work hard even when the boss is not watching? Five, do I strive to have as good a reputation with my coworkers as I have with my fellow church members? Six, do I work as efficiently as possible as to make my company profitable? Seven, do I refrain from cutting any moral corners on the job? Eight, do I make suggestions on how to improve job performance and morale? Nine, do I refrain from conversations in which the boss or supervisor is criticized? Ten, do I refrain from taking small items from my employer, paper clips, copy paper, pencils, etc., even though everyone else does it? 11. Do I make personal copies on the company copier? 12. Do I use the company internet connection for my personal use? 13. Do I fudge my expense account or time card? 14. Am I the same person on the job as I am when away from the job? 15. Do I encourage employer respect rather than helping create employee dissatisfaction? 16. Are my work habits sloppy or do I attempt to always produce work of excellence? 17. Am I on time or am I often tardy at work? 18. Do I misuse sick leave or personal leave days? 19. Do I abuse workers' compensation benefits? Do I remind myself regularly that my job performance and general attitude can bring either glory or dishonor to my Lord? 20. Do I use company time to witness to my lost coworkers or do I wait until break time or lunchtime? 21. Do I remind myself regularly that my job performance and general attitude can bring either glory or dishonor to my Lord. I love those questions that Curtis Thomas asked. Those are convicting questions. And these are questions that we should ask ourselves and pray about that the Lord would change our hearts. As we bring our time in the word to a close, I want you to consider this story. Richard Halverson, a former chaplain of the United States Senate, once met a man who owned a number of car dealerships in Washington, D.C. The man wanted to be a witness for Christ, and he thought that having his salesman hand out tracts and New Testaments to all who came into the shop was a good way to do that. But the man was infamous as a bad businessman. He didn't sell a good product. The man once came to Halverson and he said, wouldn't this be a great idea to give out tracts and New Testaments? And Halverson replied, that's a wonderful idea. But you know what a better idea would be? Treat your customers right. Be an upstanding businessman. Stand behind your product. Honor your warranties. Don't sell lemons. You see, the best gospel witness in our community is our lives. Our lives will either make the gospel look glorious or they won't. May people say of us that they could tell that we are Christians because of the way that we live. 
Paul's motivation in 1 Timothy 6 was an evangelistic motivation. His encouragement to slaves as relates to the masters. His encouragement to masters as they relate to their slaves. Paul's focus was on evangelism. His focus was on the gospel. Our lives should be about evangelism. Our lives should be focused on the gospel. We should live in such a way at work and otherwise so that we magnify the glory and the goodness of God. I pray that that is your conviction. Let me end with this final quote by Charles Spurgeon. Human nature likes rule, but the Spirit of God works submissiveness of mind. Instead of wanting to be first, the truly spiritual man will be satisfied to be last if he can thus glorify God. The man who must always be king of the castle is not filled with the Spirit of God. But he that is willing to be a doormat on which the saints may wipe their feet is great in the kingdom of heaven. Will you pray with me now? Father, we thank you for this time in your word. It was convicting, it was encouraging, and it was needed. God, grant us the grace to change. May we be like you, Father. May we work hard as unto you and not to men. God, forgive us. Forgive us for not honoring you as our Lord and Master. Forgive us for not fully submitting to you at all times and giving you the unquestioned obedience that you deserve. God, forgive us for not being the most diligent employees that we should be and for grumbling about those for whom we work. Bring us to a place of repentance and faith. Renew our mind so that we can fulfill your will. All good and all gracious God, may you find our sacrifice this day acceptable in your sight.